Welcome to the Masculinity Podcast, conversations about masculinity, men, and our relationships with them. My name's Mel, and I invite you to pop the kettle on, make a mug of your hot beverage of choice, and join us for a relaxed and open conversation. For this episode of the Masculinity Podcast, I'm very excited to have my friend Oliver with us. Oliver is a uh, working towards Bachelor of Psychology, specializing in sexuality, gender, and the history of these, and has some very unique perspectives and insights into the realms of masculinity and what that means. Um, so welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Mm, yeah, thank you very much for having me here. I'm very grateful to be on the podcast. Yeah. Um, so we were just chatting before we started the recording about what is this notion of masculinity? And I think this is one of the biggest questions that has recurred for me during the process of doing this podcast. There's so many different definitions of what masculinity is, and it seems to be internalized differently for different people. And I'm really curious about what your perspective is on this. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to kind of approach that, uh, that question. What I mean by that is, you know, what is masculinity? We can look at that in different ways. You know, we could look at that, like, what is masculinity in relationship to the culture one is raised in? What is masculinity as that arises uh, in a person? Uh, what is masculinity if we're looking at it psychologically? You know, um, what do people to who adhere to really masculine roles act like? Um, and it's interesting because in the realm of psychology, um, we don't use the terms like masculine or feminine very much anymore. Uh, when you're referring to those uh, traits or behaviors. Uh, that would be called that outside of the field, uh, people refer to them actually as either um, agentic or communal traits. So it's interesting that even within the field of psychology, we're pulling away from that kind of an idea because anyone can have an agentic trait. And when, when you're thinking of agentic traits, it is the traits that we've traditionally, and when I say traditionally, I mean like from about the 19. 10-ish onward, uh, traditionally associated to to masculine. So um, active leadership, the doer, physical, all that kind of stuff. And communal, and these are for uh, North American, kind of the West societies. And communal being the things we've attributed to, to quote-unquote, the feminine. So uh, things like uh, having the, the emotions or being empathetic and all those kinds of things. The reason why I put those timestamps on there is because the idea of what is masculine or feminine changes based on culture and based on time. So that, that hasn't been how it's always been. That hasn't always been the markers of being masculine or feminine. Um, and so how people internalize masculinity is a really interesting concept because that has a lot of relationship to what they were raised in both in their home environment and what their culture was like. Because you could have someone who is a fourth generation um, raised in communal living where that male figure was very emotionally engaged and was very um, passionate and expressive and maybe was more uh, compromising kind of thing. So that person's idea of what is masculine is very different. Mm -hmm. the, the idea of masculine masculinity itself is such a strong social construct that to say you know what precisely it is or isn't is to ascribe some type of essentialism to it, which, which there isn't. There isn't anything that is essentially inherently masculine. And I can only imagine some people like, oh my God, how can that not be the case? But if, even if you look in other societies, the traits that are attributed to being masculine in other societies can be what we consider feminine in North American society. So in other societies, you can have the person in the male social role is the networker. 
and they have to be really emotionally engaged, and they are the one who hosts the parties and makes sure everyone's getting along, and they're always, like, making sure they're touching their friends, maybe on the shoulder or on the hand, and that is actually, like, the proper male role. It's this very thing that's, like, such in flux, which makes it really difficult to kind of narrow down in on, well, what am I in relationship to that spectrum? So the reason why I give this whole big old rigmarole of a thing is so myself, I'm actually a trans man. So trying to figure out that I'm a trans man in a society where there there's a lot of different constructs on what can be masculine. And when I view the traditional kind of hyper-masculinity as something I don't want to embody, that creates how do I get into the space of being masculine? How do I kind of, not even construct it, but how do I find myself in it when I don't want to be that version of it? And that version being that hyper-masculine where they're viewed as like always being aggressively sexual and like overtly muscular and very limited emotional range and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) The other tricky piece of that is um, being trans... Uh, it's very commonly perceived that if someone is a trans male, that must mean they like women. Mm-hmm. And that that idea has been around for a really, really long time. It's this interesting conflation of uh, transgender and homosexuality, which has existed since we had the idea of uh, the beginning of the two-sex model. And about, like, once again, you're talking about, like, 1890, 19, around to like 1920s or so. Anyways, so that means that most commonly the people who were perceived to be gender transgressors, because that would have been the term that we used to use, were people who were in same gender relationships. And one of the, the people in that relationship would have the social role of the opposing gender. Mm-hmm. It's it's the old uh, who wears the pants in this relationship trope. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And and that's why that conversation even happens. Because up until literally women started wearing pants, that was a way to tell who is taking on that male social mm-hmm. role. And because, so very recently, clothing was the way we identified social roles and activities, um, it made it very easy. And it actually made it easier to be gender non-conforming because you could just wear different clothes and people would treat you like the other mm-hmm. gender. It was, in fact, much simpler. <laughs> and the, the cruel irony is that A, it was simpler and B, it was more commonly accepted. <laughs> well, we have lots of examples through history of trans men but even so, they're still written about as women in men's clothing. There's the, I, I'm not even sure how much of a myth or how true it is, but the story of Pope Joan, um, who was someone assigned female at birth, who became a priest and rose to be Pope of the Catholic Church. And then it was discovered that, shock, it's actually a woman. And, and I mean, in Shakespeare's plays, there's tons of stories you know, examples of cross-dressing and gender fuckery. But what you're saying about the conflation of gender with sexual attraction, it makes me think about a documentary I saw a few years ago, I think it was a BBC documentary, but about uh, gender and sexuality in Iran. And the the attitudes uh, that have have proliferated there, according to this documentary, um, where that, you know, homosexuality is wrong. Ergo, if two people of the same assigned gender are attracted to each other, one of them must be the wrong gender, and so should have gender reassignment surgery. And that blew my mind that that was the attitude. And it it kind of broke my brain because it's so different from how I've come to see it, where it's like your gender has nothing to do with who you're attracted to. It's something that exists completely independently. It just goes to show the strength of heteronormativity, though. Yes. Like how that becomes the dominating force in interpretation. So I want to just rewind because we've introduced some really big ideas here into the conversation. (laughs) We're talking about heteronormativity and we're talking about gender and we're talking about, uh, you know, gender essentialism and hypermasculinity. And so um, 
I just want to reflect back on some of what you were saying. So there's, it sounds like there's definitions of masculinity that can be culture specific. There are definitions of masculine masculinity that can be individual specific. And there are definitions of masculinity that are specific to the interpersonal ways that we relate to one another. And, and I think that's really interesting. I don't think I've heard anybody break it down in quite that way before. <laughs> and and this idea of agentic or communal traits i mean i i know you've heard me rant about this before but you know there'll be situations where i'll see like a tantra workshop posted online or a dance workshop posted online and somewhere in the description will be something like you know connect to your inner masculine or your inner feminine and me being the kind of person that I am, I go in and I, I ask the question, like, how are you using these terms? How are you defining them? And then I get this pushback uh, very often. Not always. Sometimes people are like super good and like will define the terms. But often I'll get this pushback that looks something like, well, it just means masculine and feminine. What else could it possibly mean? And everyone has these traits in them. And and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, but you're not actually saying what it means. Like, are we talking about genitalia? Are we talking about behaviors? Are we talking about something that's more like an energetic quality to a person? There's a lot of ambiguity there, isn't there? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting, too, because so so Tantra in, in the West, and I am not someone who is massively versed in it, but my, my understanding of Tantra in the West is that a lot of that has been brought over mostly by white people who have gone to to different places in the world and kind of like taken different teachings and, teachings and come back to them. And the reason why that's relevant is that often what happens when white people go and find something is they project their bias onto whatever it is. Uh, if I recall correctly, the term is called ethnocentrism. Mm -hmm. And so they would look at these practices and adjust them to fit into their own bias of these traits are masculine, these traits are feminine, and in our culture it's the best for those two to be opposing forces, which isn't accurate for the actual roots of Tantra, or for mm -hmm. most um, e Eastern cultural practices, in fact. So it's uh, kind of ironic that Tantra kind of puts on a pedestal this this divine masculine and divine feminine in opposition to each other. The reason why it's ironic is when I've come across Tantra, it's been communicated as though it's like going to make your relationship spectacular and divine and all these amazing things. <laughs> but being in psychology, if you look at relationship research, the relationships that do the best long term are relationships where both members are psychologically androgynous. They carry both agentic and communal traits. Psychological androgyny. Yes. I love that term. I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's the best way to describe the idea of having both agentic traits, so active, um, assertive, being able to take the lead, and communal traits, being empathetic, being connected to others, wanting to negotiate and understand planning, caring, that kind of stuff. Someone who has both of those traits is much more balanced in relationship. And two people like that makes a much more harmonious relationship in the long term. I really love this idea of the definitions of the agentic and the communal. I mean, when I have tried to explain it, I talk about it in terms of the nervous system. I, again, going back to the way that, that that ethnocentricity got projected onto Eastern mysticism, you know, people would read scriptures about Shiva and Shakti and the Ira and Pingala and, and all sorts of eccentric things like that and yin and yang, and they would ascribe masculine and feminine to them because that seemed to fit the traits that were being described. But when you actually go into what they're talking about, so Ida and Pingala are two terms used in Tantra referring to different aspects of our innate uh, spiritual energy. It's actually talking about the two different parts of the nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Mm. And so 
when I think of the sympathetic nervous system, when that's activated, that's more of that agentic quality. That's the, I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm going to fight. It's this very like clear spring into action kind of energy. Whereas the parasympathetic is more that Zen, relaxed, open, welcoming, communal kind of space. And to me, that's when I think about like, if, if people have these energies, both in balance in them, like, yes, that's great, you know, having a nervous system that exists in balance. And so when I, you know, this psychological androgyny concept, that makes perfect sense to me, in terms of having a balanced nervous system. That's really cool. Yeah. And I think to kind of like add to those pieces about sympathetic and parasympathetic, you can have that that psychological androgyny be happening in a parasympathetic state. Like we can, we can be assertive and take things on while still being calm and relaxed. Like, mm-hmm. like that, that harmony can still kind of occur because um, the only reason why I go to it is like it, the idea that if someone really is full of a lot of communal traits that they're not going to, you know, uh, embody their sympathetic nervous system they totally will and they could do it in a fight way absolutely mm-hmm. it really depends mm-hmm. more on socialization at that point but once again the traits anyone's going to use depend on socialization so and it's sort of healthy interactions healthy relationships seem to be in that space of balance between them not hanging out too much in either extreme yeah well outliers of anything usually cause more stress than they help for sure so where does that leave us in terms of defining masculinity well it's kind of it makes it a bit of a choose your own adventure doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) which of course isn't the answer most people want it's people want something simple something tangible something they can hold on to and it's you know so i we kind of gotten into this a bit from like that culture, personal relationship view, the personal aspect of masculinity. So one of the ways when I've described to people, you know, how we think of that gender roles change over time, because people think of, of gender as this, well, usually people think sex and gender are the same thing. Let's start there. Usually that's what people think of the same. Uh, gender isn't. <laughs> They're separated from sex. And gender generally refers to, in a very abbreviated sense, the social roles we ascribe to how someone looks, more or less. So gender, what the, the activities we ascribe to that role change over time. And a great example of this is for encouraging someone to think about how they embody their gender role, so how someone embodies masculine, and how their father did. Mm. And how did their father's father embody it. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get the sense of how their personal relationship to masculine changes. And when we try to go like, okay, what is masculine? You can't separate it from what someone's lived through. So like, for myself, masculine to me, I come from... um, heritage that believes the man should be able to cook. So I come from a heritage where the man cooks, which in the culture I've been raised in, North American culture, that's not a masculine trait. <laughs> but yeah. it, but it is for me. Even then the sense of masculinity becomes flexible. Otherwise, masculine things that that I've personally ascribed are, are things like um, being able to be planning, being able to be handy, being able to be creative. But that's because growing up, a lot of the, the masculine figures I was drawn to were usually artists. They were usually very creative, mm-hmm. they were very passionate, and that was the model of masculinity I liked the most because it was a model of masculinity that was in tune with its emotions, it was expressive. And for me, being a trans man, that meant I could embody the masculine while being externally perceived as feminine and try to reduce my dysphoria. Hmm. And that's like the real tricky thing about being trans, especially because I'm, I guess, bisexual is probably the best way to refer to it, trans, um, which is an atypical trans experience. We more commonly hear about the stories of someone who transitions and after they transition they would look 
heteronormatively straight, more or less. Yeah. So the so seeing someone who has my orientation and being trans was I never met it. It took me a very long time to meet someone who had the same orientation as I do. I so just to clarify, so you experience attraction to multiple genders. Yes. Okay. So because I didn't have this sense of it kind of being normal trans, which what a weird sentence that is, but okay, being normal trans, um, it meant that I questioned whether I was trans enough, which is a whole weird adventure in its own. Like, so, so not only am I experiencing this like body dysphoria, which is for those who don't know, it's not the same as that, like born in the wrong body narrative. That's a very specific narrative that was created to help trans people get access to surgery. That's a very, very specific narrative. So dysphoria is more about this feeling of like discomfort or alienation or unrecognizability of one's own body. The irony is that for many people who struggle with their weight or who struggle with self-image in any sense of the term, also have a sense of dysphoria. So it's a feeling many people can tap into. The kind of the unique-ish piece for trans people is that dys- that dysphoria is generally more located to specific things like secondary sex characteristics. It's the most common thing. Uh, and that's more so, one could argue, possibly, because in our society, we ascribe a lot of meaning to those secondary sex characteristics. The reason why that's relevant is people we may label their behaviors as trans in the past, and I use that language because we don't know how they identified, they didn't have the word. Those people in the past who had those behaviors, they didn't try to saw themselves off like parts of themselves. They didn't try to mutilate themselves. Mm -hmm. So we know that there hasn't always been a massive like going against the physical self as we have nowadays. But also at that time, it was easier to socially transition, whereas nowadays to socially transition requires the changing of secondary sex characteristics. Can you define what you mean by secondary sex characteristics? Absolutely. So that's when you're thinking of uh, breasts, facial hair, all of that kind of stuff. Those are the kinds of things that we see and we assume someone's genitalia from them. Right. So the primary sex characteristic would be genitalia, but we don't walk around naked all the time. So (laughs) in most situations, there are some places. Um, (laughs) But so because we don't see people naked all the time, we see these secondary traits. And from that, we make assumptions about their gender. Yeah. About their sex. Yes. About about their sex. And so it's someone's primary characteristics that decide how we assign them a gender when they're born. Yes. But the irony is when we walk around in society, we do it the opposite way. It's so interesting. I'm, I, I keep thinking as you're talking about two sets of experiences I've had in my life. One is as a kid, I think my behavior was definitely more uh, on the agentic spectrum of things. And that I found got pathologized and I was told that I was antisocial. And and it's very interesting. And I, I think I think as an adult I've learned to embrace more of those communal traits and behaviors. Um, so it's kind of brought some balance. But as a child, I didn't have those skills. For some reason that skill set just wasn't very accessible for me. And I was very much uh I very much identified with more of the agentic um, characteristics. And I often think about how much of that is to do with what I saw role modeled in the media. I mean, the the characters in TV shows that I loved were like the superheroes and the leaders. And they're all the examples I had were male, pretty much, uh, with like a few rare exceptions. Uh, but I'm also thinking about when I was in theater school, there would often be cases where there were not enough male actors for all the male roles. And so the female actors were given some male roles to play. And I remember the excitement I had when I got to dress 
basically in drag, when I got to dress as a male character and, you know, maybe put on some sideburns and have all those secondary characteristics become visible and then play with things like, well, how do I move now differently? You know, stuffing a pair of socks inside your underpants to try and give the illusion of having a cock there. And how does that change your walk? And and it was so interesting to explore those things as a basically, you know, as a 19, 20 year old. And that's something that I know is a very unique experience to have in theater school. And probably people who've done theater school have had, <laughs> everyone's probably had some kind of experience like that. But that's not an experience that the general public generally get to explore. Yeah, well, we often restrict people from doing it. We restrict gender nonconforming behaviors. Well, generally, we restrict it more for men. Uh, but women are slightly more encouraged to uh, to take on masculine traits, for sure. That's That's far more okay than it is for men to take on feminine traits. So the point you raised of uh, like the models that we have that were shown in movies, and that that's a big piece of where we feel comfortable expressing ourselves, for sure. Especially if we don't have models of, like if we're being socialized as female, if we don't have models of strong femininity, it's really hard for people to want to be that role and to find ways to express it in, in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And even today, like there's a lot of um, conversation I've been watching around the Star Wars movies, you know, the original Star Wars movies, they had one female character. um, And thank goodness, she was a strong woman, but there's still a lot of toxic masculinity that shows up in the way that um, she's building relationships with others. And then in the new movies, there's this female role model that it's like, oh, you young girls can finally identify with her and she's strong and she's independent. But, you know, I have a friend who looked at the last movie and was like, what the hell? Like, this undoes everything because suddenly her strength is only there because of the men in her life. And then that seems to undo all the progress that was made in creating this strong role model for women to follow. The tricky thing about, about movies in particular is that... Um... Up until about the 1930s, uh, there wasn't really as much of a rating system or a code of what could be shown in movies. And up until that point, that meant that a lot of the things that were shown in movies were very, very different. And what I mean by that, um, oh, I wish I could remember the name of the movie. Oh. So there's a movie where literally the plot is a woman who sleeps with a man on every floor of a high-rise building to get to the top. Now, the thing is, that's not a bad thing in the movie. In the movie, she is seen as very respectable. That is amazing. Her ability to, like, navigate these things is a great, wonderful thing. They remade the movie after the 1930s when the first version of the Hollywood Code was released that said, you have to do things a certain way. They remade it with her getting murdered in the end. Wow. So a lot of the narratives we have in media are very scripted to follow a very particular set of rules that were actually established in about the 1930s or so. But if you look at movies prior to that point, you will see a lot of different types of... um, I don't really want to use the word gay because it's not even a word they had then. (laughs) But like same gender behavior or alternative forms of masculinity, alternative forms of femininity, all sorts of different types of social roles and behaviors that after that point got very, very demonized and got very prevented from being shown. Even certain types of narratives, the narrative of having, you know, the... uh, Authority figures being negative or bad, that was no longer okay. Drug users weren't allowed to be seen as someone who could be humane or related to after that point. Like, there's a lot of stuff that used to be perfectly fine until that narrative got very heavily shifted. Mm. So trying to break those narratives down, we're dealing with not only the, like, the, the cultural roles of just, you know, who you're talking to on the street, but also the container of these scripts that are designed by 
media holders of rules they are supposed to follow, otherwise they're not allowed to make movies, kind of thing. And that correlates with the time period of the, you know, the Cold War and the glamorization of the American dream and 2.4 children and, and all of that. Like, there was... I mean, and certainly looking at it from the women's point of view, like women found an emancipation in getting into the workforce during World War II. And then there was that pushback of, nope, we need to get women back into the houses to look after the babies because the men don't want to do it or whatever was going on there. And so there was a bunch of the, the media propaganda stuff around that time. Like, you know, all the TV shows that came out around that time, they all have the good housewife. And, and in contrast to that, you have the male role model, the, the, the family leader, the head of the family who is, he goes out to work and he doesn't have to cook. He comes home and everything's ready for him. Patriarch. He is the patriarch. He's the family patriarch. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. I think about when you were saying, looking at the different generations of how men behaved, I think about my dad. My dad is definitely one of those men who he's done a lot to evolve and change through his life. But, you know, growing up, he was not the person who cooked. He was emotionally stoic, I would say, but definitely would engage emotionally to a degree. But in contrast to that, his father was the one who cooked in the household. And who did all the baking and his father knitted. And the reason that my, my grandfather knew how to knit was because he'd been a soldier and the soldiers had to learn how to knit and to sew and to cook as part of being a soldier. And so that was an expression of their masculinity. You know, the fact that he knew how to knit meant that he'd served in the army, uh, which is completely different to what we might see it as today. Well, and the the irony, too, is that so your grandfather, who knew how to knit, he would have also been raised in a time frame when, like, physical affection, and by this I mean platonic touch of, like, hugging or leaning or cuddling between men was completely normal and encouraged. Yeah. His view of what masculinity is would be very, very different than your father's. Yeah. Because World War Two, post World War Two masculinity was very different than prior to World War Two. Yeah, and I, I'm often interested, and I, I don't know that there are any definitive answers for this, but I'm often curious about how much of that change was a response to trauma. I mean, when you have armies that are mostly men going off to war, there's a lot of trauma that comes out of that, and that trauma not having a space to be supported in to reconnect with the emotional, more communal traits within oneself. It shuts down the empathetic core, leading to a kind of reinforcement of the agentic, uh, what we would now consider masculine traits. It's it's tricky. It was kind of like post-World War II was a perfect for- storm of so many different things. So to nail it down to one thing is to really... I don't know if simplify is, is the right word, but it's to really, like, there's just so much stuff that happened. Like, s- just such a vast amount of men died. So the men who were left, some of them, yes, absolutely very traumatized, but they also ended up, like, having so much more social capital than they did before. Like, vastly, vastly larger amounts of social capital. And World War Two, like, North America came out on top after that war one way or another i am not a war expert so if there's someone who wants to critique me go right ahead i don't know a ton about it but what i am aware of is that we had north america had a lot of resources after that point so that is going to change the dynamic of family structures because the culture itself has this sense of prosperity whereas as europe was completely in so many ways lacking because of how much it had gone through. So the family dynamics in both of those areas are, are were quite different for a sustained period of time. But yeah, there's, there's so many different things that could be why the male role after the 50s was so sideways and got so much more restricted. And one could point fingers at so many different things. Like you've got the media, you've got trauma, you've got religion, you've got government, you've got, there's so many different, like the red scare meant that anything that was not completely ascribed normal 
was considered terrible and a threat to the to the state. Like the Red Scare alone messed up heck the Kinsey Institute, which yeah, uh, Kinsey Institute. I should explain that the Kinsey Institute. Alfred Kinsey was a biologist actually who. Um, I believe he was studying like a type of gnat or something. It was a type of bug, very small bug that had a very short life lifespan, and he was studying its mutations over time. That was his jam. And somehow he got onto wanting to understand human sexuality. Um, sexuality in this case meaning uh, how do humans orgasm? How do they do it? Why do they do it? What is the stimulus that causes it? Now. Kinsey did this research kind of in about like the 30s and 40s, coming around the 50s-ish, or all around that kind of a window. And he, uh, so Kinsey, being a biologist, he had none of the moral judgments that the rest of the people focused on sex at the time had. And when I say the rest of the people focused on sex at the time, that time was an era when you were pathologized, you were considered bad, if you didn't eroticize, like, just the penis. Or if you were a, a, a woman, if you had too much interest in sex, or you weren't subservient to your husband's desire to arouse your sex. Like, there were very specific, limited ideas of what was okay and not okay, including masturbation not being okay. So for Kinsey to go... I don't care how you get off, I just want to know what it is, was like completely earth-shattering at the time. Nowadays, people look back in Kinsey and they're like, there's different flaws with his study. Okay, sure. It's easy to critique the person who did it first because <laughs> he had nothing to go off of. Whereas we've got his, his stuff to go off of. Anyways, Kinsey did tons of interviews about how people get off and what they what they do and how they do it and all that jam. Uh, he ended up publishing two books, hu The Human Sexuality... The Sexuality of the Human Male, I believe is what the first one was called, and then The Human Female was the sec second one. So what he found uh, was that what we would now label bisexuality, and I'll explain why I'm using that term in a moment, was far more prevalent than we'd ever kind of conceived of it prior to that point, and also that people were, like, masturbating regularly, that people were usually non-virgins before getting married, like, all kinds of different stuff. And this stuff may seem kind of tame now, but at the time, that broke almost every social norm and social script that existed. Now, Kinsey, unfortunately, didn't use the term bisexuality in his research, but he did come up with something that's very commonly referred to the Kinsey scale. Now, the Kinsey scale is a scale between homosexuality on one end and uh, heterosexuality on the other end. The thing about the Kinsey scale is dependent on where you define homo and hetero, the space of bisexuality can actually be quite large. So the Kinsey scale is based off of, like, how often one interacts with the same gender. And a pure heterosexual, quote-unquote, would be someone who has never had a same sexual encounter. Ever. At the time Kinsey did his research, that was really, really rare. Same with the other side. A pure homosexual who had never had an encounter with someone of the opposite sex. But anywhere in the middle happened, and it happened quite frequently. And the term bisexuality referred to Outside of Kinsey, because Kinsey was a biologist, outside of Kinsey, bisexuality in the field of, of um, sexuality referred to being of two sexes. So the person themselves is two sexes. That's where the term came from. Kinsey didn't use it because in bi biology that term means more of like hermaphrodite or hermaphrodism, where you have the physical traits of two sexes, mm -hmm. which you can see in animals. We would maybe in... In uh, humans, refer to it as kind of being intersex. Yeah. So, the original term bisexuality didn't have anything to do with the object of attraction. It had to do with the person who existed. That's why most people who use the term bisexuality now are referring to that they don't care where the person lands on the sexual spectrum. More, more often than not. 
and bisexuality is its own like beautiful huge conversation that I could rant on for a while <laughs> because there's a lot of really fascinating research about it. Kinsey, uh, go- coming back to him in the Red Scare. So after Kinsey published the sexuality of the human male and he communicated that he was going to do the same one of the female, that's when people got real pissed off at him. They were like, nope, no, you can, you cannot break all of our precious bubbles about what women do. They are pure and clean and no, not allowed. Um, and at the time, the Red Scare was starting to happen. And, and the Red Scare is the fear of communism? Yes, yes. And so at that point in time, president at the time wanted Kinsey to out the gay men in his study so that the president could remove them from whatever businesses they were in, specifically if they were in government. Right. So the level of pressure there was for people to not express that type of behavior and to really embody a traditional masculine role after World War II was phenomenal, considering someone who's just doing research about the expression of how people come to orgasm was being pressured to out gay people. Like, that's... Whoa! Whoa, man. (laughs) Calm down. (laughs) It shows how much people are afraid of expressions that are different. There, There is a fear, I think, of that which we cannot understand. And this is somewhere where I've noticed there's a lot of fear. And I I see this fear coming up for people, regardless of, of what gender they are. When someone is trying to express masculinity in a way that differs from the norm, people are judgmental, people are afraid, people will try to attack the expression and the person uh, giving that expression. It's, you know, it's still something that continues to this day. I mean, I, I think of, I, I mean, I feel like I'm very privileged to live in a bubble where, you know, these kinds of conversations are just everyday conversations between us. But when I get outside of my bubble and I hear, you know, like I'll be in this in the changing room and I'll hear women talking about how a man was behaving towards them and they're criticizing him for not being aggressive enough or not being forward enough or for crying or for expressing too much emotion or things like that. And I'm like, holy shit, why are you so uh, critical of this variant expression? And, and it sounds like this is something that's been ingrained for a few generations now, that an expression that differs from the established quote-unquote norm is a threat in some way, like an existential threat. So moving into the current day and expressions of masculinity, for you as someone who is a trans man and who doesn't want to get into that hypermasculinity. How do you navigate that? Because that for a lot of people, hypermasculinity is the only thing that they will actually recognize as masculinity. It's true. How do you you know, what can you share about what your journey has been to embody healthy masculine pieces? It's it's a good question. It's it's a tricky one. Um so just to kind of like add an extra layer of onto that being more or less bisexual kind of puts me in the ballpark of of being a a gay man the reason why that's relevant is gay men embody hyper masculinity even further because they have to not have to they are socialized to compensate for their perceived femininity in their liking of men so for example like the the trope of the the gay bears Yes, the gay bears, or just the trope of that gay men won't commit, they're going to be hypersex, they're just looking for sex all the time, they only want hookups, uh, grinder, (laughs) Um, all of that, it would be very tricky to tease apart how much of that is actually performing uh, hyper-masculinity and really, really pushing it. That'd be very, very tricky to tease apart, and I'm not saying that's what it is. It's just that is a confounding factor in there that we have no idea how much it's influencing. And so if you are out on a date with someone who presents as male, do you feel that you need to accentuate your own masculinity so that the perception isn't projected as something heteronormative? That's not even just going on a date. That's existing. 
So that's that's the trans art of passing to begin with. To be trans is to try to pass as the gender you're trying to be perceived as. I'm using the word try because when people say they can quote-unquote clock a trans person, what they're saying is they can see someone who is in the process of transitioning to their gender. Mm -hmm. That middle phase from kind of when they announce they are trans and when they kind of complete their social transition, whatever stages those may be, that is the stage when that person is the most likely to kill themselves. Hands down. Because that is the stage when usually their dysphoria is the worst because they are not being perceived very well. And so during that phase, passing becomes really relevant. So that's when you see trans men will often like cut their hair really short. They'll often try to like talk really deeply, like alter their walk. Um, they often go to the gym. So they do try to embody this like this hyper masculine thing. And That'll continue for as long as it's going to continue for. For a lot of trans men, they have the blessing of that once they get facial hair, usually they pass. Mm. That's that's usually the end of the road. They're they're fine after that point. It's kind of like an adolescence then, in a sense. Like yes, you're suddenly no matter what age you start the transitioning process, it's like you're 12 years old again and yes, having to go through a male adolescence emotionally you might already be like you have 40 years of life experience you got a second puberty you gotta clock yourself on through (laughs) it's gonna be very frustrating and you also have the hormones to go with it that can also cause all kinds of adventures and changes for sure so that performing of masculinity doesn't happen just in the realm of dates it happens as soon as the trans person leaves their house it could happen as soon as they leave their room, depending on who they live with. And that can be different for every trans person. I know for myself, so I'm backtracking hecka back, so when I was still in high school and I knew I was trans, but because I was bisexual, I didn't really, like, I questioned it a lot. My way of navigating that was of embodying and acting like the male performers that I liked. Hmm. So that way within myself, I knew I was acting male and because they were male performers, they were kind of effeminate. So I still performed the female role externally to myself. And that carried me through for a very long time. The tricky part is like nowadays, I'm a lot of those pieces that I've constructed, the pieces that I wanted, the pieces that I performed for so long because I actually liked doing them and Gender is a performance. There's a whole person who's that's their realm of study. The pieces of that that I performed and I really enjoyed, some of those are still perceived to be quite feminine. Mm -hmm. So when I really started transitioning, mostly in academia, I found myself really restricting the way I would move or really trying to be very aware of my posture or things like that. Yeah, and in certain environments, that just comes to the norm. Or because I'm at that really awkward stage where I'm a very slight figure so which will stay the way it is no matter how many how much testosterone you pump through me I'm gonna stay small which means in a pinch I still look very feminine so in a situation if I know that I can't like out masculine a person a guy who's around I'll just okay I'm a girl now because it's going to be safer for me to do that than to be perceived as a small man. Right. And that's the really weird thing about masculinity. Like, in a weird sense, being trans, I have this strange out still where I can, like, hop into this other space and, like, kind of be safe. But because so much of masculinity nowadays is constructed in relationship to other men, I am more manly than you are, I get stuck in this place of, like, okay... I don't really want to perform hyper-masculinity. I don't want to have to try to be more manly than you by being more aggressive or something. But at the same time, I know if I don't perform that right now, I'm not going to be safe. So there's a piece of masculinity that is competitive and the the sort of patriarchal dominance culture of I'm I'm more man than you. And for trans-masculine folks, that's not a game that is safe to play. It can depend. It can very much depend on the on the trans man. Like I know someone who even before 
they started taking hormones, they could easily bench press anyone around them. Nice. <laughs> so, so, like, <laughs> they were fine. <laughs> uh, and so that's the thing, like, and that's the thing about the trans experience is it's, it's in no ways is it universal. Like, everything I say is relevant for me. Mm-hmm. And there are thousands upon thousands of trans men who could easily say that my experience is not representative, my experience is, has nothing to do with anything about theirs. So what could cisgendered men, men who were assigned male at birth and and identify as masculine, what can they do to support safer spaces for trans men? It's really just being able to be comfortable with their own emotions. As as simple and as like seemingly small as that sounds, the thing about trans men for the most part, they have been socialized as female for some portion of their lives. And that means that they are going to be connected to their emotions in a different way than your average cis male. And of course, these are broad, general brushstrokes, but it is definitely a thing. And the more emotional language any person has, the more physiologically regulated they are. So therefore, when they come across new ideas or different people or different things, they're not going to have a huge negative reaction. And the thing is, for trans men, being around cis men, though it can be hard, it's not as unsafe as it is for trans women. Mm -hmm. Cis men and trans women, that's where the whole... That's where stuff gets really, really, really difficult, and that's because of toxic masculinity and fears of homosexuality. So the more men can get in tune with what it is they're feeling, why they're feeling it, and how to navigate that, the better it's going to be for anyone. It's really it. And like, if you can look at how you're relating to your emotions versus how your dad related to his emotions versus his dad, who do you want to be like and why? Hmm. What what are you going to get out of that? Do you have any favorite masculine role models? I haven't thought of that in a long time. Probably because after really figuring out I was trans and trying to kind of pursue that, a lot of male role models I just kind of withdrew from because I knew I couldn't embody them the same way. Hmm. And so if I think of male role, role models, I th- like there's usually bits and pieces of like there's a fellow who um, works at the campus that I int- attend and he is also trans male and he's been there for a very, very long time. And in a sense, he is a role model for me because until I met him, I'd never met a trans elder, trans male elder in person before mm. until I met him. That alone is a surreal experience, like to have the idea to have never met someone like you who is older than you it's a weird experience (laughs) to have never met like a trans man in his 60s and then finally meeting one and going oh that's what I can actually grow into I finally have a sense of my future self there it is for the first time in my life to have a role model of someone who's like emotionally engaged or something? I don't know. I guess, okay, what's a man that I frequently watch or tune into or something like that? I'd have to say Oliver Thorne. He is a philosopher on YouTube, and in a lot of ways, he embodies being connected to the emotional self while being aware and navigating it very fluidly he engages in really difficult conversations in a very articulate manner for sure so yeah it helps people get like critically think and i'd say that's probably the closest i could have to a role model when we think of transgender mostly because being a trans person on your podcast puts me kind of in the space of being the token trans you can't see it but i'm grinning awkwardly Go ahead. Great. Cool. Um, so there's, uh, I wanted to address like kind of the common transgender narratives that exist out there. So I did comment on one of them being in the wrong body narrative. 
there are other narratives for what transgender people kind of are, quote unquote, how we how we exist and why we exist. Um, the being in a wrong body narrative arose from the historical standpoint of when trans people started to request surgical interventions. And the are the strongest argument they could create at that point in time was being born in the wrong body. It was the best argument that obviously worked. So I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just that's why that one of the reasons why that argument exists. If someone is really interested in learning more, I would highly recommend for this specific view, Histories of the Transgender Child by Julian Gill Peterson. She's very focused on surgical trans history, which starts at a very specific point. Another way of looking at transgender, though, is looking at it as a form of alternative gender presentation or alternative sex. So the idea in Western society that trans is somehow new, it really isn't. Gender non-conforming people have existed in Western society for a very long time. There's cases of it existing in North America among the indigenous cultures that lived here before got brutally invaded, and even after settlers had arrived, there are many, many records of gender non-conforming persons in quote-unquote white cultures that existed. This whole idea that it's new or that it is the wrong body, no, it's been around for a super long time. There's a view of possibly looking at transgender as though it's another form of intersex, where if you view humans, like any other animal, as having their gender present along a spectrum or along a standard curve of representative traits like every other trait we measure, then the variance we would have in between how people present their gender would have more flexibility. The idea that we only have two extreme categories on either ends of a curve doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Viewing the trans people as another type of like gendered intersexuality uh, is another way of looking at them. I've also heard other people describe it as trans as though someone who was born with a hormone deficiency. Mm. So thinking of it as like, okay, we've got some people who their pancreases don't function correctly well for maybe for trans people. It's just that their gonads didn't produce the right hormones they were supposed to. So looking at trans through a bit of a different perspective because it's not always this like the body is terrible thing there can be different reasons it's a lot more specific than saying someone was born into the wrong body it's specific as to this aspect of the physical body does not function the way that this person wants it to or the way that feels comfortable yeah or the way that feels good to them the way that matches who they are yeah and of course the piece there is that like how much would that body piece matter if our society wasn't structured in the way that it is. Because historically, people who were gender nonconforming didn't require surgeries. And it's not necessarily because they weren't there, but it's because they could... One of the reasons you could think of it is that they were able to live as their other gender without having to do anything like that. They could just wear the different clothes and do the different gender roles and be fine. That's fascinating. Which also speaks to, you can do masculine however you want to do it but it's about getting the people around you to be all right with it and to be on board with it and having those difficult conversations with them about masculinity because that's the thing that holds each of us in these really hard roles is the people around us we're put into the gendered boxes by our peers And the only way we can get out of them is by working with our peers to get out of them. Thank you so, so much for sharing all your wisdom and all your personal insight and experience. I am, I feel so honored to have you as a friend and to be a witness to your incredible journey. Thank you. And I'm super grateful to get to partake in this. It's awesome. Yeah. And thank you for taking on such a, such a project. (laughs) it's a a big endeavor (laughs) yes it has been (laughs) I can imagine the masculinity podcast is made possible by the support of people like you please visit my patreon at patreon.com forward slash masculinity m-a-s-c-u-l-i-n-i-t-e-a your support means the world to me 
And all people who support this podcast get to join our exclusive Facebook group where the conversation continues. Join us next time for more conversations about men, masculinity, and our relationships to them. In the meantime, if you have ideas, questions, or things you'd like me to talk about, give me a shout. Melina at RadicalRelationshipCoaching.ca